0: Hey friends, special announcement before we start this week's show. Friend of the show, Jeff Miller started an amazing golf brand called Club Jason. Designed with quality in mind, Jason sets no limits on comfort, feel and appeal. They are devoted to growing the game of golf and creating opportunities for those who could benefit greatly from a little extra support. 10% of all sales will go to a Club Jason scholarship for a female golfer. An additional 10% of all sales will go towards junior golf programs in Ontario. Clev Jason wanted to pass on some savings to you, official friend of the show. Use promo code DIMES, that's D-I-M-E-S, at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Jason also offers free shipping in North America on any order over $99. Visit clubjasoncom that's C-L-U-B. JSON.com to check out their amazing clothing and to learn more. Jason, join the club. Now, on to the show.
1: Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. Feel like it's it's a little late in the game to be getting him because they deserve a big assist in how this show started. So today's guest is the co-host and co-creator of From the First Chair podcast. He's been with the Ottawa Mavericks since 2003 to present day. He's been at Canada Games in 2013 and will be our head coach at the next one, we're hoping 2021. He's been involved in HBC and Team Ontario since 2011. And most recently, he's been with Team Canada as part of the Junior National Team. Please welcome to the show, Frank Saint-Denis. Frank, thanks for doing this, my friend. Josh, great to be here. You know, I, I feel like we should have tea on the show just so it feels like one of your episodes, but I think I needed to change it a little bit just so it didn't feel like we were a total rip-off of your show.
2: <laughs> great one. Well, he would be a great guest uh, in his own right, so I'm sure that that could be something down the line. But, uh I was about to say, I feel like it's it's full circle, because I remember a few years ago when you were on our show, and off the air we had a lot of questions about uh, podcasts, and, and uh, so at that point I felt like you, know, you were maybe the, the student asking questions, but today there's no doubt that you are now the master, <laughs> and uh, I will have to steal some time off the air from you to steal some of your tricks, so... Kudos to you for the great job you've done so far.
1: Well, thank you for that. Yeah, you guys definitely deserve the the big push to start our show. And I'm still a big fan of yours, obviously taking a, a bit of a break as the world's on hold right now with COVID. But we're not really a COVID show. We're a volleyball show. So we'll get started and we'll, we'll dive into your career here. So with you being a teacher at heart and a lifelong learner, you've admitted several times on your show. I'm curious, you being a big sports guy, what made volleyball stand out to you that this was going to be a big one that you were going to invest a, a lot of time and passion into?
2: Great question, Josh. I mean, yeah, no doubt for the listeners that maybe don't know me, I'm, I'm a multi-sport kind of guy. I grew up in a small town and hockey in the streets, baseball at, at the, the the closest part, but like three or four-guy baseball. So we had an imaginary second baseman and stuff like that <laughs> and played all the small-town sports like uh, like uh, tennis, hockey, baseball, ping-pong with the buddy. So m- multi-sport background and, and really um, two things I think drawn me to to Volleyball, particularly beach volleyball, because it was not a sport before the 90s. In my opinion, I know it was in some mecca, but it wasn't around us. And so I literally grew with it, and and I developed a big passion for beach. I was a, a somewhat undersized lefty, so I mean six one is not undersized, but it is in the volleyball world, and. You know, going around and going to some of these tournaments. So so maybe we'll talk about beach later on. It's certainly a big passion of mine. And then when I started teaching, the school where I went didn't really have a volleyball coach. They had a basketball coach. They had a badminton coach. They had a track coach. But there was a need for volleyball. And so uh, I I got going that way. And every year I was adding a bit to the program. And then the, the fate had it that those other teachers the badminton teacher the basketball teacher retired and then I you know very selfishly I guess took a bigger piece of the pie and started having better and better athletes so it grew in that sense in hindsight I want to tell you that I think volleyball is a coach's dream in that you have many many uh, opportunities to interact with the athletes in practice and in game so it makes it fun and then all the tactics the counter tactics the Played really well to my mathematical scientific background, so I kind of think that's why uh, volleyball took uh, the main seat in my life. Although I'm still very passionate about all these other sports. And in my school setting, when I get the opportunity to coach the, the golf team or a good soccer team or basketball, I mean, I think uh, it's always fun to be uh, the last few seconds of a basketball game trying to draw up a, a play with the, the the athletes on the bench. So. I'm still quite passionate about all sports, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. I was curious what you were still coaching, but I guess the the school setting allows you to be involved. But have you been involved at the club or rep level? I know your sons were really, really good baseball players before they chose volleyball as the one they wanted to pursue at like a post-secondary level. But is is, is school enough for you, or have you pursued anything else at like a rep or club level other than volleyball?
2: My biggest rep, uh, I don't know if I can call it rep, back then, but I would but i have to tell you it was was tennis, so as as a high school, then university, in a few years post-university, I was a, a tennis monitor if I, if I can call it that, I guess that's a bad translation from French, I was uh, taking care of the clients coming in, I was uh, being part of the summer camps, and then eventually I, I became, uh, I don't know if I can call it a tennis pro, but I had a few certs and I was giving some individual lessons, and, and then eventually we had a a little team that competed in the local circuit here in Ottawa. And then a few of those players would go on to a, to a provincial championship. So uh, I would say tennis is the one over a decade that I did at the highest level. But I also was involved for, for a, uh, a short stint with, uh, with hockey, more on the dry land side of things. And then more recently with my kids going through the system a bit by default uh, with, with baseball. Because yeah, you have I had downtime in the summer as a as a teacher, and baseball is just such a, a phenomenal sport to do a lot of a lot of reps. Right, it's uh, it's a trap because it's so time consuming and it takes a while to put in the reps. But then once you do get some athletes or a club that's willing to bite into that, then uh, it becomes a goldmine.
1: Nice, nice. And when you chose that club volleyball was going to be like your main sport outside of what you were doing at school with your profession, what drew you to Mavericks? Because I think that Ottawa area does have a few clubs. So I'm curious, how did you get set up with them? And what was like your early impressions of being a club volleyball coach?
2: Well, that that's a great follow up question to the last one. Because the real answer to your last question, Josh, I think should have been... I think I could always be fully satisfied with, with school sports. I, I never had envisioned that I was going to go away from school sports because, you know, September I had I had a bit of cross country that I was helping with and, and senior boys volleyball that would go to November and then November to March was with senior girls. I would always help a bit with the track team in, in the in the spring, uh, somewhere in between, I do a bit of tennis or badminton being a, a sport racket guy. So, I certainly had all my needs in school. So, I never envisioned getting out of school. But, my I call it I have to tell you this story. I call it my uh, BMX story. So, I'm going to, I guess, show my age here. And uh, Consumers Distributing was the Amazon of my days. And it was a, a, uh, a store where you, you couldn't really shop in the aisles like you do at, at some of the stores we have these days, but you had to look in a catalog. You probably don't know about Consumers Distributing, Josh. Probably, you're probably too young for that, right? Does that sound ring a bell? To you? It,
1: it doesn't ring a bell with me right now. I'm so sorry.
2: <laughs> no, but that's okay. So you, you, we'd receive the catalog through the mail, and, and you'd look in the catalog, and there was this BMX that I really wanted, and I didn't really grow up in in big, big fortunate settings so I had to put some money aside from my paper route. My parents helped me, but that's like a, a year and a half into that happening. Anyway, once I did get my my BMX, it had star wheels and was the old regular spoke, so I was the the talk of the, the town or the, the local part of my town i should say and uh the bmx theory is as follows so of course what you do once you have that bmx as a young boy you ride around you jump sidewalks then all of a sudden you get a, a piece of wood and, and a brick together and you, you construct your own jump and once you can do that successfully then you try to add two bricks three bricks four bricks at some point that that doesn't work anymore uh you you, you break uh, I broke my handlebars, I had to buy an extra piece, and then I figured out something called the transfer. So you end up in the woods, and you build two piles of dirt, and you jump from one land onto the other. The snowboarders that might be listening to your podcast would understand this story. So the BMX theory is something I use a lot in sports when I coach, or even in my classroom, and that it's that human nature of always trying to get to the next level, right? Gamers get that, too. Once you unlock a level, onto that next one, get it done, so that you can move on and get to whichever level, you know, you can you can brag about. So that has always been big in my nature and I was the same with volleyball. So I started coaching at that high school, uh, L'École secondaire Publique uh, sorry, L'école Catholique L'Escale, uh, in, in Rockland, that small town east of Ottawa where I grew up in. And you know, nobody tells you what to do, but you have you know, free reigns to do what you want. So a typical school team, two practices a week, first year, participate in a tournament or two, uh, grow it to three practices a week, four practices a week, have positional uh, specific practices, start to have meetings at lunch, do mental preparation, throw in video analysis into that. All of a sudden you make it to provincial championship. You see what good teams look like. I start to steal time from those coaches, ask questions about the systems they're playing. You can kind of see how snowball effect uh, happens here. And so five, six years into that, I start to play regularly in Ottawa tournaments. And I come across Kerry McLean, who's a, you know very reputed coach at, at that point in time. He still is today, of course. He, he's the president of the Ottawa Maverick Volleyball Club, founded it in the 80s. And his story with, with that club was, so he was coaching at Colonel By secondary school and at some point he had a really really good team I actually think they won off so with that that group eventually but to complement that what he basically did for many years was he would take his the core of his Colonel Bay senior boys team and then recruit a few other players from other Ottawa schools and create an OVA team for that and of course the OVA was not what it is today so that was pretty exceptional that he did that so playing against Kerry's senior boys team in Ottawa we, we we get and we play some scrimmages here and there, and he gets me on the. Hey, Frank, you should come and coach club at some point. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm already coaching two, three, four school teams here. I don't know if I really have time for that. Blah blah blah. But eventually, one or two years down the road, it, it lined up pretty well. He had a big need for a 60 new boys coach in the club, and I had three or four. Like in my progression with my school where I was at at that point. I I understood that if I had some guys playing club although we were, you know, half an hour outside of Ottawa, uh, it was going to get my school program to that next level. And the guys were, you know, guys and girls were getting good enough that the better players now were looking for that because they understood that playing club meant provincials and meant that next level. So, it, like, the stars aligned. And that particular year, uh, Travis McLean, Gary's son, was on that 16 U team. And I would be coming in the, on the on the Sundays. I would only go once a week to practices, drive in my, my rock and guys, spend time with carry. I ended up going only to one tournament in February, but I remember very well because it was in Mississauga. And of course, the OVA being what it is for Ottawa, we had to, to, to go through a snowstorm coming back. And Mississauga is about a five and a half, six hour drive from Ottawa, but it became a nine, nine hour drive and i i I was the one i was the driver for that particular tournament so and Carrie was with me so we had some really good chats but i was thinking and i told him like you do this you know 10 times per winter you're crazy there's no way i'm gonna do that and uh, lo and behold the next year i was i was doing it and i've never looked back since so
1: yeah nice lots to pull from there but just as you remind me there i remember we went to Ottawa for a tournament once and a lot of the GTA teams were complaining, but I remember speaking to Bruce Dunning and I was just like, you guys do this so often. Like, do you ever get used to it? And he mentioned that Mavericks have made a big push lately to get this one school, beautiful facility, I think three or four courts, but he mentioned his son, Jackson probably never slept in his own bed at a club tournament like that's how frequent these Ottawa teams were traveling and I'm curious did any of your athletes ever push back and say they didn't want to play club because of just the travel commitment and the cost of hotels and things like that like let alone the cost of playing club volleyball but staying in a hotel every time you want to play in a tournament definitely adds up in a hurry so are there kids in the Ottawa area that are, are definitely good enough to play at the rep level who just choose not to because their, their family doesn't want to make these wicked drives into like the middle of the province?
2: Yeah, just before I answer, disclaimer, like, especially on the boys' side, there's not that many teams, and if the team is talented enough, they're going to play in the top tiers, and the top tiers are always in the GT area, so especially on the boys' side, we travel all the time, like, typically, uh, over two years, if you have a tournament in in Kingston or east of Kingston, where you don't have to sleep for, for a 17 or 18 new boys' team, that's usually the average, so... Uh, Jack, Bruce and Jackson Dunning's quote is is certainly true. To answer your question, I think it's just it's part of the culture. I mean, we're certainly trying to find solutions, but the way I present it to our guys, first of all, uh, I mean, it's a great team building opportunity, spending that time in the car, uh, being in a hotel together, like any team that goes to a tournament where they have to sleep over. Any coach uh, will recognize the value of that. There's just something special at that time that you have uh, at night in the hotel rooms. It's just great opportunities to get to know each other and just feel more connected. So it's a great way to turn, I guess, a negative into a a positive. And the other thing I like to say a lot, too, is, well, we really test the true passion that you have for the sport because – If you're willing to do that for the vast majority of competitions, then I know you're you're really in it and for the right reasons. So I think it's I think it's culture. I mean, we we've set up a great structure with with the parents, Uh, even the parents look forward to driving the kids, and they have their social time and they're involved a lot. You know, I want to say we we can have the claim to fame that we were the original club that started the food table tradition. <laughs> so we we had the, these pieces uh, that, that certainly helped grow that culture. There are some, the, the biggest hurdle are some kids that are financially challenged. But to this day, I want to say that most Ottawa clubs have done a phenomenal job at fundraising or establishing a benevolent fund. Or just finding ways to make sure that you know the financial hurdle is not the reason why an athlete is is not participating. Uh, I'll tell you that sometimes at 17 or 18, you as the game is maybe outgrowing an athlete, especially on on the boys' side, but sometimes on the girls' side too. But you know, a 14, 15 year old boy that is five nine and a bit of a man child and having you know great success, and then all of a sudden grows an inch or two maybe doesn't really pass six feet now all those twigs are now six five and starting to turn into men. um that can be that can be challenging for them because what traveling does is if you have limited playing time then you know it's pretty sucky to not play more than a couple of sets in a full-day tournament but what's worse than that is if you have to travel a thousand kilometer round trip on top of that and have five hours in the car to think about it um, so so it certainly has put uh, you know emphasized certain things that, that we had to to address but no I want to tell you that it's just part of the culture and, and kids understand that that's the pay the price that they must pay
1: nice yeah and the other thing that came up there was just you explaining your process and I love the BMX example and just how you were constantly looking for the next thing and, and what came to mind for me was I don't know if you're going to take the credit but I've heard you deserve a lot of credit for this is turning that Mavs program and adding that extra layer of like the HP program and I understand you deserve a lot of credit on the boys side because I think Rex Fenton or maybe Jeremy Lorty or that generation was that the first time the Mavs really invested in like you're we're going to have organized lifts we're going to train maybe three or four times a week we're going to go to more tournaments like really almost turning it into like a post-secondary prep about how we we're going to treat club volleyball so what what's your memory of this era and, and be honest with me how much credit do you deserve turning this into like a more more high performance program than just the normal club that we most of us were used to. I think growing up.
2: Wow, well, you did your homework. There's some some name dropping that you just did there. That wow, that's a, that's great, Josh. <laughs> um, well, I, I almost told this story before, but I'm sorry. Like I, I get going here, and I think I, I stretch on my answers too much. But I think this is a great story. So back to that first year that I was assisting care with the 16U team. I did go to nationals, which was in Sherbrooke that year. And as we're driving to Sherbrooke and are stuck in a jam in Montreal, ha ha, big no surprise there, Kerry, you know, genuinely mentions that he's, he'd like me to head coach at Nationals. So I go, well, Kerry, you know, I've thought about this, and certainly, I mean, it, it would make the weekend more, more fun for me, but I know exactly why you're asking this. You want to see, although you've seen me head coach my school teams, now you want to be on the bench and really get to know what I do. You're intrigued by it, so... Hey, I'll take that as as a challenge slash compliment. But if we do that, I know it's because there's something in the future you'd like to see, and I have done a lot of reflecting on that. And I have a small list of things I'd like to discuss with you. And so I I vividly remember um, uh, one one of those nights. Well, it's power play night, power pool uh, night. So after the second day, going into the third day, we start to chat at 11 o'clock at night. And what Kerry didn't know is I had a 42-item list in my little black book that I had accumulated. I'll give you a very simple example. So, for instance, when we drove back from that tournament in Mississauga, we typically have a Sunday practice with the club. But what a lot of teams did back then was they canceled that practice because, hey, we come back in the wee hours because – we traveled and, you know, we travel all of Friday night and all of Saturday night and had a tournament Saturday. So a hey, Sunday, the kids are going to rest and catch up on schoolwork. It makes a ton of sense. But if you're going to be a high performance team, it's a golden window right after the tournament, the following day, things are fresh in your mind. It's probably a great learning opportunity right there for the athletes. Maybe we don't have them jump 300 times in practice but maybe there's a, a aha moment that you know we we got to seize the moment and do that. And so I'm not going to go through the list but I want to just give Carrie a lot of credit because back then he was you know in his I want to say he was in his early 40s and I was still in my 20s. So think about it, you know, you, you have a club that you've founded been you know going for 15 20 years at that point I'm not sure how long? But a uh, fair bit, and it's pretty successful. And now you have this this young guy who's going to come and tell you how to do things. So it takes a pretty special kind of person to be open minded to it and, and discuss it. So we had a four hour conversation, and at uh, three a.m. went to bed. And Kerry at that point had like eight pages worth of of notes and, and reflection on our conversation. So that tells you the kind of guy he was. And that following summer, we sat down, Kerry. Uh, Greg Kotnicky, who's a business mind that, that is involved with the club and, and helps tremendously in the growth of the club. And Bill Swiers, I don't know if you know that name or not, he was assistant coach to Lionel Woods for a long time. I think he might still be involved with, with greeting with Lionel. but so the, the thought was Bill was going to start on the on the girls' side. and I was going to start on on the boys side. and, and we had a pretty, you know uh, intense conversation at that point. Bill was all about outsourcing. I was all about doing it in-house, didn't really understand. I thought everybody was kind of like me and had passion for all the topics and developed the knowledge around it. But that that is kind of essentially where it began. And we were very concerned because that is in 2000 and I want to say it was 2005 maybe. And so, you know, paying $1,500 for club was expensive back then. And now we were going to propose a model where you had to pay, you know, thirty five hundred dollars, four thousand dollars. I mean, it was year round, and it included all these other segments. But it was a big risk. that would would people do that? Well, you know, ten, fifteen years later, and after the LT80 model came out, and you know, we don't question it anymore. But at that point, it was. But but to me, it was just natural coming out of my HK, uh, human kinetics degree uh, in university. I was. For me, sports was way more than just the technical and tactical side of the sport. All the nutrition, recovery, physical preparation, mental, leadership, team building, culture, like all those pieces were all very important to me. It was like a, a big change. Like, like uh, Glenn Hogue presented a model. It was called the performance model. It wasn't his, but he presented that every time he had a, some kind of workshop. And it was called the performance factors. And was, if you can envision it, so much sense to me. That's like, hey, that's what I've been trying to tell you guys. So, just just fortunate timing of all that stuff. So, I don't know how much I can uh, take credit for it. I think it was a, a group effort, but I guess I could say my idea was
1: probably the catalyst in it. Amazing, yeah. And you mentioned you were passionate in a lot of these areas, and LTAD wasn't really established by the provincial sport associations yet. So, where did you find the the time or the passion or the expertise to become like comfortable that you, maybe you could present the nutrition stuff or the mental stuff or were you trying to bring in third parties as well like where did this stuff come from because like i said when i was at the ova around 2009 and 10 ltd was still new and the province wasn't providing that many resources where it seems like you were on the cutting edge of this
2: if, if you have uh younger maybe volleyball or, or high school or, or college post-secondary athletes listening right now you know they're not going to understand that but when i was a high school and university student there was no internet, Josh, believe it or not. So we, we had to find other ways to learn. And that way for me was uh, a membership with uh, with a magazine. I don't know if you remember Volleyball Magazine, that, that American, which I think is still published today. But it always did such a good job. Uh, I did the same with tennis. I even had a, a running one. It was called Runner's World. So that, that was my way. I would I would uh, buy a membership, go away for the magazine to come in every month. And those magazines had three four articles on up and coming athletes an article on a championship and then two or three articles on on technical tactical or even nutritional or physical preparation so i would love to get that that magazine read it rip out that that new program or that that tip and then try to use it in my next uh, tennis course i would give to the teenagers at the tennis club or something like that so i just that's kind of how i did it when i was young and it was very conducive to the summer jobs uh, I had, and then I, I just progressed through that as I started coaching in in high school as well. So um, I guess I was a, a self learner, keen on give me something new. Let me read about it and try it, and that just naturally progressed to at some point in university as I'm doing my sports psych class and thinking about how I can use that in this sport or that sport in, in that motor learning class. And oh man, I've been teaching this all wrong. I need to try and do it this way. And so on and so forth. So I think I gathered enough of information over time, and the university degree certainly helped. But what a lot of, I guess, the mistake that a lot of HK students do is pretty quickly to associate themselves with one area. Oh, biomechanics is my thing, and and that's it. And they do the other parts, but not really with that same intention. For me, kind of every branch of of that uh, university degree was like an opportunity to, hey, I can apply this to this sport or that sport. So I kind of grew it that way. And then I felt like, hey, we can bring in an expert who certainly knows a lot more than me, but that expert's going to be there a limited amount of time. And then when the athletes really need to develop that skill that the expert is proposing, who's going to be there to observe and provide guidance? The expert probably won't be there. So for a long time, I thought that I, probably it's better to have somebody that doesn't have that extensive knowledge, has basic knowledge, but can be there uh, to, to establish uh, a foundation. Not sure that that's the right answer today. Maybe maybe a combination of both. But like we see it with provincial, like with TMO provincial programs, or even with club. Like if we bring in a, a mental prep, and and he or she does a great presentation on let's say self talk. Well, next practice or not next tournament. If my athlete is doing a terrible job at that particular self talk topic that, that we covered who's going to remind the athlete hey, hey you need to do it this way remember and and that is like just such an important piece in the learning process right so th- that was my my mentality I've always had you know, a lot of enjoyment satisfaction out, out of doing it that way is it the right way I'm not sure but at this point I feel like you know when I've been part of some of the you know the junior national program or when I was helping Jeff Chung at the twenty thirty for the twenty thirteen Canada game cycle, I felt like, hey, whatever you want me to do, Jeff, I, I think I can I can help. I can contribute. So it just I think has established a, a foundation for me that permits me now to be comfortable in, in the vast
1: majority of areas. Yeah, amazing. Thanks for sharing all that you have about your process. And I'm I'm curious just to put a lid on this what has been your feedback loop for this? Like, did you have a chance to speak to university coaches or check in with Glenn and say, hey, here's what our HPP, uh excuse me, our HP program is doing. And yes, the athletes are advanced in this stuff, but you know, we're really not capitalizing in this area. Or like, how did you know that everything you were putting into it was turning these athletes into like next level players and they maybe did have a head start at the post-secondary level or provincial team level, whatever they were pursuing?
2: that's that's a great question because maybe being too self-centered i like to take the theory and try to make it simple and understandable applicable for my athletes and hopefully it makes them better and then it's like active for life is always a very big thing for me hey i really hope that all my athletes go as far as they can as long as they can in, in volleyball But I absolutely want them to, A, be active for life because, I mean, you can, you know, be part of the biggest team, professional team and and win the CV Champions Cup. But at 35, if you are uh, obese or mentally unfit or I don't know what, then I think I've failed. Like ultimately, uh, the sports careers are are very short, but I hope that there is a lifelong passion for for sports and and you remain active as the quality of your life will be awesome right so they need to be active for life and then the second piece is give back like i need to see them uh coach i always tell you know i'm going to trade everything at this level with you this year so that you're successful the next level next year and i hope you have the best volleyball career but i'm going to give that all that away if you can be active for life and then i'm going to give all that away if you come back and give to the sport a lot so very selfishly i didn't really care now we've got some clues over, over years as some of our athletes were going into some of these programs. The biggest feedback we got was around physical preparation. A lot of the university coaches would, t- would come back and tell us, hey, you guys did such a great job. I have this athlete from your club coming in year one, and they are probably more weight room ready than some of my year three athletes. Um, and they, they would come back to us and ask us about how how we did this and whatnot. So I think that in itself was really uh, strong feedback and then as i got involved more and more at some regional provincial and, and national level and i was now in, involved a bit more with some of these LTAD developmental programs and whatnot and um, i saw that hey yeah uh, it, it's lined up but you know what uh, josh to be honest a lot of the theoretical papers that i was you know getting my hand on and reading and using to guide my personal program design they were using the same so ultimately, it, it lined up uh, pretty well. But another piece that I think we, we did a lot too was I, I would just gather feedback from, from the athletes, from the parents, um, formally, and then just try to, to adjust, right? I, I feel that every season that I coach, I need to say, hey, okay, this is one thing that I'm doing right now that I need to change. And this is one new thing that I want to try. So I've, I've been coaching um, volleyball for 20, 27 years now. And every year, every team that I coach, I, I need to highlight that. What's one thing that I need to do better change? What's one thing I need to do new? And then I figure out how to do that with that particular team I'm, I'm working with. So some years I'm coaching four teams, right? I often coach uh, the senior boys and the senior girls at school. I coach a club team and then I coach with the provincial team. So that that's four opportunities to do that kind of cycle. So I'll do that four times a year over a decade you're gonna evolve a lot right so so that program did evolve a lot uh through the years so i think those are kind of the three main reasons that would uh lead me to say that yeah i think uh that, that the program was uh, lined
1: up properly nice nice very nice and, and one thing i've always respected well not one thing a lot of things i respect about you but uh one thing that stands out is you live some of the stuff you say where I think it's easy in the coaching world that some people say, oh, you got to do it this way. But then you hear stories or you see them in their own gym and they're they're not doing these things. So I've always respected that you provide the theory and you're willing to talk and answer questions, but you also live it. And, and one example that comes to mind for me is this LTAD thing that when you took a younger team, I think this was at the 15U or maybe 16U level, you started your season off running like a 6-3 and training more setters. And I think by the end of the year, because it was a team based on performance and, and winning was important, you had narrowed it down to a 6-2 or maybe even a 6-1, but it was just cool to see how you could be running a high performance team, but still believing in LTAD and player development and things like that. So I'm curious, how do you come to terms with what the plan is going to be? Because like I said, we're we're all competitive and the kids want to win, but you're also doing kind of walking that line of development and performance at the same time. So I'm curious... How do you find the right path for this? Or are you honestly just getting an idea and trying it on your own?
2: Well, I think, I think it starts with my multi sport background, right? Don't don't forget about that. I'm I'm multi sport, and yeah, I had some uh, you know short stints in, in volleyball as an athlete myself, more so on the beach. But uh, I didn't know at the time. But today, through all that coaching, like it's it's so obvious. If I'm at a try at the beginning of the year, let's say you give me a hundred. 14 new boys for for a 15 new team. Uh, within 30 minutes, I can kind of point out who the multi sport athletes are. It's just uh, amazing uh, the, the skills that that those people have. So th- I was biased that way, right? I understood that it was important that to to, to, to you know be multi. So if I had a 14 new athlete that was doing only volleyball, I had an issue. I would discuss it with the parents, say, listen, we have. I'm not a great uh, talent identificator e- even though you might think I am I mean research shows me that we are terrible at identifying I mean you know Tom Brady is a poster boy of that I'll, I'll shoot that out there we're not good so I don't care if you're five two or six eight at 14 years old we still can't predict where you're gonna go um, and I hope you're gonna play volleyball for a long time but I hope you don't play volleyball year round so I want you to to, to golf in the summer and play volleyball in the winter, or play soccer or run, or so just at that point, I, I'd rather see you know people do many sports now in volleyball specifically. Same story. I, the first time I went to officer with my school team, believe it or not, Josh, we were still doing a five man service seat. like those are 17 18 year old boys, and we're doing a five man service seat. We weren't the only team, this was single A offices so there were a few northern schools that you know weren't exposed to volleyball but the top five six teams were all doing three-man serve receive right so like i said earlier in one of the questions i would sit down i sat down with a coach my very first officer Rockway Mennonite, i they were seed number one and i watched them two three games and after like their last pool play game i went to the coach and said, Listen, can i steal some time from you like i need you to explain to me what this three-man serve receive thing that is like how do you do it i didn't know like i i got a team to officer but on that team i had uh four AAA hockey players. I had two guys that are still uh, ultra-distance marathoners internationally today. Uh I had a guy that is, well, pre now, so he was a triple officer sport guy. Like, they were athletes before. They were volleyball players. But all those guys could pass, could set, could hit, could block, could dig, right? They were all-around skilled. So that's another one of my bias. I want to try and help you as much as I can. I hate it when coaches take tall players and don't let them pass balls, let them pass. Cause yeah, maybe six two is tall for a 15 year girls team, but maybe six two will be a left side at like this top university in, in six or seven years from now. So um, yeah, just, just all around. I think that that's one thing that makes it easy for me. And then same with systems. If people play one system and they only know one system, then they don't, understand fully all the different tactics so you know when you play uh, a 4-2 for instance so you always have a front row setter so pretty quickly kids are or setter kids are going to figure out that hey dumping is a pretty easy way to score and any tight ball I can jump and do that with it but if you play a 6-2 only kids kind of don't understand that they understand that they have to save every ball and set it so i guess a tip to some younger coaches younger team coaches out there if you don't like your setter to dump, just play a 6-2 for many years, and they won't be able to dump in, in the system construct that you have. And, and there you go. My point being, there is value in all the different systems. Now, there were a lot of failures along the way, Josh. So like 16 new boys, first year LTAD came out, and I broke it down. I'm like, this, this is great. I got to play a 6-0 here at this first tournament. So we actually went to a Quebec event. Uh, Because that was the first one available. We played a 6-0. I I remember it to this day because we played 14 sets in that tournament that day. And we won only one set. So we played a 6-0. And, you know, kids were were respectful. Parents as well of of my thoughts. But let me say that uh, hmm, there was a long chat afterwards because... Uh, at that specific tournament, there were, I don't know, there were a dozen teams, but there's three other teams that we played much later in the year when we were, uh, we might have been at a 5-1 system at that point. And uh, we, we beat all three teams handily. It's just people weren't used to that 6-0, right? But there were a lot of failures along the way. Uh, but I think how you present it to the athletes makes a big difference. So again, I'm going to use that same example. Four-two is great because setters learn to, you know, be able to jump set and and use the the dump if necessary or not, and you understand how to run an offense with only two front row attackers. The six-two, well, the back row setter needs to learn to penetrate and when uh, and needs to learn to use all three attackers. So if you do, you know, I do often what I did there at fourteen fifteen. Yeah, we do the six at uh, the four-two. Sorry for. You know, two, three months, use uh, three tournaments or so, see where we're at. Then, so usually that would get us to Christmas break. Then between Christmas break and March break, we'd play the 6 2. And often kids are really excited about this. Oh, this is the new challenge. We're doing it this way. It must be better because now coach is having us do that. But again, it's just a bit more movement on the court, having a right side hitter. Um, So, like, give you an example that you may or may not know, Alexa Kanda, who's, you know, lefty that's playing at UC Irvine now was on that particular team. So when we played the 4-2, either he was going to set or play middle. So he played middle for us. And he didn't hate it, but he didn't love it. But then when we moved to the 6-2, guess where he went? He went to right side. And now all of a sudden, you know, a lefty hitting right side is something fun. So there is always some pieces in the evolution that, that can make it work. And then whether or not we dropped to a 5-1 at the end of the year, to be honest with you, was really dependent on – the quality of our setters because it's if you're playing a 4-2 or a 6-2 on a club team you probably need at least four setters and if you want to be successful in my approach which is i want to play everybody there's, there's no way at 14 you i'm going to sit a kid on the bench for uh, a third uh sorry for four two-thirds you know, like I, I want to get all my players at least close to fifty percent of of the time playing because, you know, they love the game and they deserve to play. So it was a lot easier. I didn't feel like I had like four good setters. Then I would drop to five one, and I needed only two good setters. And those two other setters would play a position that was conducive to them, but them not touching the ball as much because we all know how critical the setter is since he's. Involved in almost every rally and can correct the first and third contacts. Pretty impactful uh, position. That that's kind of how we went. And I, I guess because for me it was normal, exciting to go that way. I guess because I had explanations and a way to work on it through the season. It was the same for the athletes. And then one, three, five years later, regardless of the success we had with that team, I still believe it is much, much better for their long-term development.
1: Now, is everybody pretty open to what's your, uh, lack of a better term, selling here? Or do you feel like coaches need to be winning to really confirm this? Because it sounds like you've got a great pathway and and you're going to commit to player development but if you're not winning do people get off track and start questioning your methods in a hurry like how do you lock in a team and say okay this is going to pay off but maybe not yet and i think you know putting a lefty in the middle where they could be a stud right side is a great example of like how can we keep them engaged before we add this extra layer to our seasonal plan right so my my first question i guess is where do you stand on like the growth mindset thing versus do you need to win to really confirm that you know you're a credible source and you know what you're talking about or can you really Fight them on. This is going to work eventually, but we might have to go through some some pain, painful phase of, of not winning or not performing. Just right now,
2: winning is, is fun. Is fun for everybody, uh, regardless which moment it happens. But it's it's a poor servant, right? Uh, and and we all know how we tend to overvalue it. Unfortunately, it was it was easy for me with the club because we had a lot of teachers. Kara McLean, club president, teacher. Uh, Br- Bruce Dunning uh, and so on and so forth. So uh, all of these people, as, as this program was becoming established, made so much sense to them that everybody valued way more development than, than success. Um, and on the boys side, there's not as many teens. So it's a lot easier to stay in top tiers. Uh, I think as long as you have, Meaningful competition, and you win once in a while, people are happy, but they're happy if you get that and if everybody is playing in our club, especially because we travel so much, uh, if let's say we had the scenario where a team was winning a lot, but the coach was shortening his bench a lot, very quickly i was I'm on the executive with the Maverick volleyball club, and i'm I'm involved a lot with the coaching uh, assignment and and helping coach develop. Very quickly, we, we, the biggest complaint for, for many years in our club was playing time because if you're going to travel to Toronto you know once to twice a month and be on the bench mostly, it's going to suck. It's going to suck for the kids. It's going to suck for the parents, and they're going to talk about it pretty quickly with, with the coach and, and with, the, with the executive. And so I think, yeah, winning is important, but pretty quickly it was put aside because of the personnel on the club. And then, with time, we still ended up having teams that you know recently i will i will highlight uh, Judy Musso's team, the eighteen u girls two years ago, who won next to nothing over four years. they were always very competitive but could never win and they they had a very physical team uh but then at eighteen u they won they won provincials because that process takes time right and then by eighteen u they won provincials, but I think the real badge that we we like to, to boast about with our club is how many of our athletes, um, you know, Alina Dorman is, is, I think is a great example. Went through club and, and she had a good career, but never, ever, you know, I don't know if she won, you know, three or four premier tournament. She was in many premier tournaments, but never won, never won provincials, never won a national medal, I think. But Hey, all of a sudden she gets university you know, much university ready and then wins, you know, rookie of the year, uh, OUA player of the year, her university team wins uh the OUA championship a couple of times. Like uh I think that's the real badge. We had one year, the quest for goal carding came out, and out of I think it was twenty six athletes on there, seven of them were Mavs kids. So uh, I think that's I think that is the strongest statement that that could be made, right?
1: Wow. Yeah. Very good point. And you've shared so much here. The next thing I really wanted to pick your brain on was you've obviously proven just through this interview and anyone who's met you in person, you are a lifelong learner and you're just consuming knowledge and looking for new ideas. But I'm curious, how do you filter through that? Like if you were to speak to Glenn and be like, oh, you guys are running like a... Uh, first step BIC here you guys are running an overload here but you're coaching you know senior boys high school like so you're not going to be able to steal that stuff even though you might think it's super cool and valuable or maybe you want to show off that you're this great coach and you can run this national team system with a high school programmer or, or something like that so how do you sort through what the next progression would be versus getting distracted on YouTube one night and talking about what agapath is doing or some other players like how do you boil it down to what can you actually do in your gym versus being entertained by all this next level stuff you can you know try to to learn about and be exposed to
2: Uh, that is such a great question that i try to answer often because i've evolved through it and and i wish i could have had that question before and and write it down to have the perfect answer to convince everybody so (laughs) i'll preface it with i am a a a math teacher right i'm very logical cause to effect Uh, i love i love weight training and and getting ready for a 10k race because. Here is a six-week program. Here's what you're going to do every day at which intensity. Like it is so metric in the approach, and, and I love that. And so my coaching was so much like that at first, and my certifications didn't help. My tennis cert back in the day was all about progressions, right? So uh, learning to hit a forehand was grip, then was half court, and just really mini volleys. Then you back up a bit. Then you hit cross court, and down the line, and counter cross court, then do a movement. And then you would get into games. So there was a continuum of, you know, 12 drills. The first one was super isolated, artificial. And the last one was game context. And that's what you did. So for the longest time, my coaching approach was I need to go and find the perfect drills. They exist out there. If I can buy that 2000 drill book, I want that. And then I'm going to scurry to it and and, and use it. And then eventually I would be at symposiums. And just like you said, Glenn would be showing something super advanced. With, with the block that maybe didn't even apply to eighteen new boys, but then next week, I was in the gym and I would see a coach from our club with thirteen new boys, say or thirteen new girls like a young team trying something that that you know a presenter proposed that doesn't even apply and I, and I thought it was pretty comical at at that time, but I think I evolved from progressions and trying to find the perfect drill to know the perfect coach is knowing. How to design a drill, tailor it to your group, tailor it to where we're at in, in our learning process right now. Now, I have a lot of opportunities. Because I coach mul- multiple teams. I, I teach. Teaching is, is the same thing, although I teach math, science, and physical education. It's still the same thing. It's analyzing your students and then figure out what is a good challenging task for them to do that's going to get them uh, further down their, their, their learning path. Um, so – today i would i would tell you that there's so much information available now because of the internet because of podcasts because of of videos and youtube and and there's more sharing between coaches than ever and that's great but there is such a strong need for sound logical analysis of the information and and good decision making and a good scientific evidence based approach right like okay so you see this how you adapt it to your group? Think about it, figure it out. Okay, now go and try it. But like, watch it closely. Is, is it working? Is is it a bit absurd, or, or is it going to be ugly for a while? And you're going to be patient, or no? You know, you screwed up, and now you need to you know remove it or evolve it. That's coaching. That that is the essence of coaching, and why it's it's so hard and so much work, uh, but so gratifying when when you do it. So uh, I don't know that I gave that perfect answer that i was looking for but hopefully i've I've helped some listeners understand the mindset that you need to have uh to to use uh, some of the new knowledge that you gather
1: definitely yeah thank you for that and it does remind me you are involved in coach mentorship and i and i want to draw back to a previous episode we had with tom black and he mentioned People really want to get caught up in the method, like specifically what drill are you running, but they don't understand like the principles of it and like, what is the main thing? So I'm curious when you're doing coach mentorship, how do you make sure that the the coach you're assisting that one, you're not taking over and you're, you're starting to drive the ship here of what this team needs to do, but you are educating them on what the principle is and they have the flexibility to do the method. Because again, when I was at the OVA with the, with the coaching portfolio there, the, the, one of the funniest moments that happened was this coach had to fail their assistant coach for their level one certification. I was kind of like, oh, that's weird. And he's, they explained it to me. They said, well, they did my drills. Like they understood they ran a pretty good practice, but they couldn't defend the why are you doing this or what are the reference points? What are the teaching points? But they can watch my practice and do a cookie cutter copy of that, but they didn't get the methods and the principles right. So that's why we had to make them repeat this. So I'm curious with all the coaches you get a chance to work with, how do you guide them through this process of this is the big thing you need to understand. Don't don't get distracted that like this is the cool drill that's gonna teach your kids. You need to understand like the why and the behind-the-scenes part of this.
2: The very short answer that I'm gonna blow up is it's it's funny when I mentor people, I very seldom tell them what to do. I almost always ask questions, listen closely to their answer, and try and repeat their answers to them so that they go down that path. I think. Learning is a very much misunderstood process, and way too many coaches and teachers assume that they know what the student wants to learn, and that is such a humongous fallacy. Most of the things that that you know or that I know, I'm going to learn something today because I want to learn it, Josh, and nobody's going to tell me that I want to learn it, and nobody's going to tell me how I'm going to learn it, and those that think they know how I need to are probably wrong. So that is very much so my approach. And, and I've made that, that mistake often as, as a coach or as a teacher in my classroom because in the classroom, we have a darn curriculum. And because on the volleyball court, uh, I've been to a championship, I've coached this age group X years, and now I assume that I know. But the thing is, these kids that I have now are different from the kids I had before. They're different culturally. They're different because they had a different experience. And I need to understand how they figure out to help them. But the best way to do that is to ask them questions, listen to them, and then try to use that as best as we can. So back to those coaches that that I mentor for for a long time with the Mavs, my approach is just trying to give them a lot of the really good information. Like I, I always try to do two or three professional development days, bring in guests find out what our club coaches want to learn about and then find some really good coaches on that and bring them in. Um, and, And our club is, you know, has grown to 30 plus teams now and we are in like 20 different schools. So I cannot go and see all these coaches on a regular basis. So our reality makes it so that I have to provide opportunities for them to learn some stuff, reflect on it. And then the only time, I can do stuff worthwhile with them is, hey, we're at the Christmas party and we are reflecting on the first part of the season and coaches are doing a self-evaluation of what they've done so far. And it's super interesting to listen to them. Listen, I've never coached 14-year girls. I don't know. I don't really understand how crazy it is that there's like five different tiers and it's important to get up really early, but you want to respect LTAD. I don't have that reality. When I coached 14 new boys, I don't know if there was 20 teams at that age group in the whole province, right? So I love listening to them. And a few years later, I was uh, uh, out west, out east, sorry, at a Canada Cup, and I spoke with a very good friend of mine, uh, ex technical director, Jason Trepanier, and a uh, lovely story. I mean, he has some really cool stories. I would highly recommend that you get him on the show at some point. So he was explaining to me that the, the, the best coaching mentorship approach that they had over the years was as follow. So the mentor was never, ever in the gym because a lot of coaches, a lot of adults, when they, they, they are very uh, insecure and they take critical they, they take feedback very critically, so it doesn't really work. So if you're in the gym, it, it gets them unnerved very quickly. But that mentor was never in the gym. That mentor was in a different room, and after practice, the coaches would come in, kind of explain their process, explain the drills, so what went well, what went wrong, and the mentor would just propose a thing or two, based on the fact that he was not in the in the gym at all. And and Jason said that that's been the best way. Like that that particular summer, uh, there was so much positive feedback from the coaches; they felt that they had grown the most. And and he was going to do that again. I didn't speak to him since. But to me, that made so much sense when I tie it to what I've been describing to you. And so when I mentor, I try to just ask a lot of questions, right? If I know something's wrong, for instance, I go, Josh, you know, what do you think about that method to drill that that you ran? And very often you're going to give me the answer without me having to tell you. Then I'm going to go, okay, so obviously you think it didn't go that well. How are we going to improve it next time? And then, you know, you're probably, let's say there's three or four points that I thought of, maybe you're going to say two or three, and I'm just going to add another one quickly and leave it at that. And really, all I did was let you reflect on and kind of highlight stuff. And that's probably going to help you grow way more so than than me being so directive
1: amazing yeah and thank you for that shout out yeah jason dupney is is a great guy and a great mind for volleyball that i i definitely need to follow up and and reach out and get him on the show uh, i'm curious as, as just we've heard about you progress and go from you know being a high school coach and then you're an assistant at club and then you help out at canada games and you're going to be in the first chair at the next one and you've done team ontario and you're part of our national team system now do you ever feel like you had to to step up or be a different person? Like you're now like, oh, I've got the, the Team Canada jacket. I got to really step up and make sure that I'm loud and I'm giving more feedback. Are you this method where you're so comfortable that you're the same guy in the gym whether it's you're coaching junior boys at high school or coaching the junior national team because I think that's something all coaches face and, and I definitely struggled the first time you try to give like Sam Schachter feedback it's like Sam Schachter knows way more than I do but they still want to be coached is the sense I'm getting from the high levels they still want to be coached up and they still want to be improved so with your own journey how have you reflected about every time you've climbed the ladder how did you get comfortable quickly and, and still add the value that everyone knows you have?
2: Ah, there's such different roles, right, Josh? Like a, a school season is three months. It's pretty intense. We have, you know, 12 league games, four or five tournaments, two or three weekly practice all in three months. So it's very intense experience. And I'm often alone with those 10 or 11 kids. A club season is over like eight months and we are three or four coaches and uh, and then provincial team or national team most of the time i'm an assistant coach or i was for a long time an assistant coach i was more about okay, hey, coach what do you need from me and how can i help you and i i would often ask about the feedback piece with the athletes too because i think that's that's a big one but as, as i moved up um i mean i i like to ask questions like like i told you but also uh, it, it was a fact that hey I i hadn't played at that level i'm not an international athlete so even if I kind of knew the answer, me telling was probably not going to be the right answer. And, and so I was more, you know, asking. And I would ask the athletes what they need. And, and some athletes like to have a lot of feedback. And they tell you, and then I would provide more feedback to them. And some other athletes would, would like less feedback. And, and so I would adjust that way. Some years, my head coach would tell me, you know, I, I don't like that we provide feedback that much. These athletes come from such various backgrounds. We get them together. The focus is on us learning the system, so we need to maximize that. So I would, for me, it was always about adapting to to those various environments and their needs. So I don't, I didn't really see it as, oh, this is the next level, and I don't know, because providing feedback is providing feedback, right? However, again, I think it's my background, right? Think about it. I I teach, so I've been. This is my twenty fourth year of teaching now. And, and I must provide, you know, hundreds of feedback every day. I plan lessons and then I coach on top of that, right? I coach at a rate that probably I, I feel comfortable in saying probably nobody does, right? I coach two or three volleyball teams at school. I coach a club team, a provincial team, and I've coached a, a Nash, some kind of a national program three times now. Well, more than three times, times a few years. So like, I, I don't know too many people that, that, that do that much. But the point is, I've I've just accumulated so much, right? So if we went to Tony Hawk and say, "Hey, you know, first time you did that particular skate move at a big competition, was it was it hard?" I'm guessing he would have said probably not, because he had done it so many times in so many different scenarios. For, for me, I guess it, it was the same too. Maybe maybe the nature of the feedback was was slightly different. But uh, no, I never never second guessed it i guess and i don't think it it ever changed uh to me uh there are different scenarios
1: awesome awesome you've given us so much and you just reminded me of another question here that i meant i made a note to circle back on just your love for beach volleyball and hearing that you're so into bmx and skateboarding and anyone who's ever read talent code i think me growing up and and trying to get into skateboarding a little bit. I think sports like that are great because they give you instant feedback and and you can really feel like you're learning or challenging or pushing the edge of your abilities. And, you know, there's dangerous feedback that when you fall, like it really lets you know that you messed up there. But uh, I'm curious in terms more of a ball sport like beach volleyball, where it sounds like you got into it in the early phases and there probably wasn't a lot of coaching going on. So, Is that what maybe switched you on to this athlete-centered philosophy that you really like to create environments where the athlete can, you know, I think the buzz term right now is explicitly learn what they're doing versus being guided and told or, or what really made you fall in love with beach volleyball?
2: It it was, it was accessible. I think, I think is the the one reason why I did, I did beach more. So it was accessible in that, you know, we built the beach court. I didn't need to find two, three other people uh tournaments were sprouting all around so I can basically produce the own season, my own season I wanted. And it was an athlete driven sport. So there, there I was I didn't feel bad because like in tennis I competed for many years, but I didn't have a coach really. I had an older tennis player in my small town helping, but he would never come to the tournaments. So it was quite intimidating slash a huge disadvantage to participate in, in ten tennis tournaments in the summer and ninety uh, percent of the matches I'd play, the, the other guy had a coach. You know, but in beach, it's it's athlete driven. And even to this day, they've made some adjustments, but it's still, you know, widely athlete driven, and it was conducive to to that to me. Um, next to no beach volleyball material out there, so the challenge for me was to grab indoor volleyball books and try to read that stuff and figure out how you could apply it to to beach. So again, I think that that spoke to my learner teacher uh self-taught i'll do what i want approach kind of guy um and but there was also reality about i mean i i loved indoor but i there's like i, I didn't have a club i could play on but beach i only needed one partner right so a six-one, well well-rounded uh, athlete slash volleyball player uh, on the beach seemed you know i didn't have too much of a hard time finding a 6'2 to 6'6 ish righty to play a left side along my side right that was a pretty easy build to find so through the years I've had a few different partners but I would always establish a partnership for the whole year and season plan that way so I just think it was a way more conducive sport because of all the reasons I've, I've elaborated before but then, on the flip side, it contributed even more so to that that process, I guess that I follow as as an athlete and as a coach that I've described through this this pod.
1: Amazing, so I am curious with your teaching background, your playing background, and your knowledge of Ltd where do you stand? Because I feel like this generation gets pushed a little early to decide if they want to go indoor or beach or pursue this sport, because I think you can play a lot of sports year round. Like you can probably be a full-time soccer player at eight years old for all I know. And, and hockey is really fighting to be year round. so, where would you stand on should kids play beach and indoor or should they play indoor and soccer or indoor and another sport beach and another sport? Like obviously there's not going to be one answer for everybody, but where would you find the balance of the two disciplines within our sport? And then hopefully finding like a, another sport outside of that.
2: Yeah. Well, we have to analyze the culture to, to answer that, to be honest with you. I don't think we're at pe a, at a point where the culture is developed enough that, that, people or that athletes that coaches that the volleyball community is going to fully embrace that they should intertwine even though I think uh there is room for that but my my answer to you is I think the first problem right now is the amount of time that the kids spend doing meaningful uh physical literacy activities because I don't even want to call it sport specific so that that is my first piece unfortunately right now because of technology, because of where the culture is at. When I talk about culture, I talk about the professionalization of youth sports because that's what we've done, and parents buying into that. right? Parents just don't understand that the kid having a skateboard going to the skate park or two boys or two girls going to the park with a bat and, and a couple of gloves is as useful, or I should say maybe even more so, and paying big bucks to be in this very planned program at, at a young age. We don't do that nearly enough. So that that is the first step for me, getting kids to do more with less. Uh, I, I think that's how we're going to develop better athletes. Then the second piece is, hey, it, it, Josh, it can be, it can be uh, beach and indoor volleyball, but it can be all the other sports. It could be Hockey or soccer are, are two examples that I'm going to bring up that are killers. They're killers because from a very young age, they tell you they have to do only this sport year round. right? And it's, again, I mean, they're trying to hit the home run. So for every 10,000 kids that they are going to work with, yeah, there's one that's going to go through that model and they'll become the Tiger Woods of their, of their club. And I'm happy for that. But what about the 9,999 others that, you know, it's probably a mistake for them to do it at, at that level. So we need to find ways for the clubs, for the different sports to understand this better and, and intermingle or find ways to uh, overlap. For me, beach and indoor is an easy one because they don't overlap that much, right? Indoor is, you know, fall to spring and beach is... Spring to, to, to not even fall, spring to end of summer. So there, there would be room for, for both of them to, to, to exist. Um, and I think even at the university level, I mean, some universities manage to do it where they, they kind of encourage your athletes to, to do beach in the summer because one thing is certain for me, and I have a bit of a beach background. Like you said, there is zero doubt in my mind that some of my best school And club teams and some of the best national team athletes that I know have had uh, significant experience on the beach. So for indoor, it's certainly valuable. I don't know beach enough. I would throw back the question to you. Do you know some of our beach players? Actually, maybe maybe Sarah Paven would be an example of that. That you know did a bit of both, but you know grew up more so on the indoor and then used all that leverage on the beach.
1: Yeah, I think Sarah. Well, one, she's just a, an amazing athlete, I think, but she's probably the the poster example of somebody who can make the switch. But more recently, a name that you brought up is is Alina Dorman's on the beach national team as an next gen athlete, and she's just been a joy to work with in terms of how she learns, how she works hard, how she has this growth mindset that she knows she's not quite where she could be yet, but she's still working towards it. And I think that's an athlete that. I know she maybe played some OVA beach tour and stuff and maybe provincial team later for maybe one summer but she didn't play a ton of beach because I was at the tour event so I I didn't see her a lot and I know she was playing indoor team Ontario a lot so there's an athlete who could switch the other way and really make some strides and and, you know arguably not even arguably I guarantee she could be playing professionally indoor right now so made the decision to join beach and Kind of be behind a little bit of athletes in our same age group versus going to play pro right away. So and those are just anecdotes, right? I think I think there's a long list of athletes we could find.
2: So here's my final statement. We are terrible at talent ID. No matter how good we think we are, we are terrible. And research proves that so much. So let's assume that. And then some people are going to get to the top being Tiger Woods, like just one sport from a very young age, and some others are going to be late entrance, and some others are going to be a mixed multi-sport getting there. Now, we could you know, do research and speculate on the percentage of each, but the fact is both, all three streams that I just described are going to get athletes to the top. So who knows what the right approach is? I think what we need to do is embrace all of this and say, A, we got to find a way to stop cutting kids so early. B, understand that everybody can have their own path and there's not a path that's better than another one. C, stop professionalizing it. And D, try to figure out how we can share and find ways to multiply these sporting opportunities instead of isolating them. And, and if we do that, and I think we're going to have a, a much healthier society, be much better programs, no matter at which level. And that is like a, a huge win-win. But there's so much money and ego that gets in the way of what I just described that it's super hard to do.
1: Absolutely. And I feel like we're just scratching the surface and we'll have to get you back on because I feel like there's a ton more stories and information that uh, we could be learning. But with that, I'm just looking at the clock and I've taken a big chunk of your day for a guy who's a good family man and on, on his own holidays right now that I'm interfering with. So we'll we'll call it there. But one thing is a tradition on our show that we like to just tell a, a funny story that even though you've you've been to the highest level of volleyball, I'm sure something funny or odd has popped up along the way that you could just give us a quick laugh before we let you go.
2: Cool. Oh. I have a good one for you. So the first year I'm involved with the junior national program with a good friend, Gino Brusso, who's the head coach, volleyball legend in his own right. There's something that happens between set one and set two, and um, he's in a rush, and now his lineup is not ready. So he just throws the paper at me, and he says, tells me the names, and I'm writing down the the numbers, um, and we handed it really quickly. And unfortunately, Josh, I actually wrote in the numbers in the old classical way. So I had setter uh, middle left side instead of setter left side middle right, which is the way the six-one system is now. So guys get on the court in their you know normal setup, and then the referee switches them. We're like, oh my god, oh my god, what are we gonna do? Unfortunately for us, we were playing the Bahamas. Uh, which is certainly not a nation uh, that has the same pool of athletes that we do. So I'm like freaking out, quickly figuring out, and hey, Gino, we could do four subs and do it this way. He didn't want to do that. He thought it was going to look silly. So guys pretty quickly figure out how to, a couple of rotations, set it up. We take a timeout pretty early and, and show them that the rotations, the two other ones. But my first lineup that I do in an international match for my head coach, and I screw it up. So uh, yeah, th- that is a uh, not so funny story. In the moment, we did win the set and the match, and and nobody heckled me too much about it. But to this day, I still think uh, it happens to the best of us.
1: Oh, that's an amazing one! Yeah, thanks for sharing that, and I'm sure the players gave you a good razzing afterwards. But I'm glad you could still hold it together to get that win. <laughs> yeah. Well, amazing, my friend. I'm glad we could connect and, and get you on the show. And thanks for sharing all that you did, and and definitely. If they haven't already, everything's archived and, and really well done from from the First Chair podcast that you and T run. And I think you guys have done a great job and had some amazing guests. So those are, those are still live and ready for people to go if they have some downtime and want to do some more learning. And hopefully this one helped out a lot, too, because I think you, you shared a lot with us. So thanks for coming on and, and all the best of luck with everything you've got going on with your coaching and your family and, and hopefully see your podcast back on very soon.
2: Thanks, Josh.